Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. In a general sense, um, I do try and get a sense of what a client's values are. Um, and you know more in terms of what's important to them, what we're trying to, in their mind at least, what we're trying to achieve by, by setting things up um, and what their main concerns are. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, In this episode, we're going to hear from uh, Ian McCullough. Ian, you'll recognize from past episodes, he was on back in uh, season two, talking about helping clients to deal with debt and building loyalty that way. And somebody I just had the pleasure to meet here, uh, that being uh, Craig, and Craig is at the last word in a state planning shop in Calgary. Really great uh, discussion here. You'll hear a lot of value in this. Um, this is a pure estate planning conversation, so no ANS credits or anything like that, no compliance credits. It's uh, life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. That'll be good for an IAS credit, financial planning credit from FP Canada, professional development credit from IROC, and an estate planning credit from MFDA. Uh, we go a little long here. The whole discussion, uh, at least the raw audio, was 59 minutes, so I'll be quick. Uh, the object, this is my second, my backup financial calculator. I actually own uh, four different financial calculators, but this is the uh, Sharp EL738F, and it's a fine calculator. Um, I believe if you do the Canadian Securities course today, this is the one that they use. And yeah, it does everything that my favorite uh, BA2 Plus does. It just has a different layout and I don't have a fancy emulator for it. So I don't use it as often, but it is a nice calculator. All right, uh, let's roll into the interview. Just one thing I'll just point out here. Um, Ian talks about the uh, donor advised fund company that he works with, talks about their TEP team, trust and estate practitioner. Uh, You might remember Amanda McCloy earlier in season four, on talking about obtaining her trust and estate practitioner uh, designation. So let's roll into it. Hi, I'm here today with uh, a familiar face and a new face. So um, a lot of you will recognize Ian McCullough. Ian is a financial planner based in Calgary. He's been a previous guest on the podcast, a regular listener and referrer, which I always appreciate. Ian, thanks so much. And also often... uh, are sort of uh, 
you know, impromptu troubleshooter, which I appreciate too, Ian, thanks. Um, and we've also got uh, Craig Turvitt, whom I've just had the pleasure to meet. Uh, Craig is a lawyer uh, practicing solely in the field of estates, I believe is right, Craig? Yeah, yeah, all in the estates, absolutely, yeah. Perfect. Also in Calgary at the firm, uh, The Last Word, you'll see it sort of imprinted on the window behind him there. And Craig is overlooking uh, First Ave, First Ave, right? And St. Stephen's Street in Calgary, which is a, a great location. So um, can I uh, maybe get uh, both of you, I think I'll start with you here, Craig, to tell us a little bit about your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thanks for having me on. It's, it's nice to meet you. My practice is, you know, like you said, exclusively wills and estates. Starting out, I, I really wanted to, I realized there was a value in in having this kind of stuff sorted out properly. And um, as such, we just went all in on focusing exclusively on that area. We work with a pretty broad range of clients, as you can imagine, because wills and estates is needed for everyone. Um, you know, obviously, in some cases, it's, it's more obviously necessary. But um, in, in general, you know, obviously, I'm biased, but I, I have a strong opinion that everyone should have a will. So, so we work with a broad range of clients. Um, we can get into some really complex planning with trusts and estate freezes and things like that. And, you know, some of the corporate stuff that goes along with that. But otherwise, we're exclusively wills and estates. We've got a, a you know, relatively small team. We're still a small boutique firm. But um, yeah, it's uh, I really enjoy it. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Craig. And you'll know, you'll get no disagreement from me that everybody needs their will, power of attorney, personal directive. That's uh the, the complete package, right? And I know there's other stuff that goes in there too. So, um, And Ian, yourself? Yeah, so we run a financial planning advisory firm, downtown Calgary here. Our target market is the retirement income planning market. Uh, demographic ages 50 to 65, business owners included. Uh, and we feel we're being actually pulled into estate planning more than usual, but that is our target market. So I run a business with uh, another associate, two associates, and um, about three administrative assistants. I'm just curious here. You say more estate planning than maybe anticipated or expected. Do you think this is a, a COVID fallout thing, or do you think it's just unavoidable? What's the reason here? Due to the nature of what we do as planners, it it just it's estate and financial planning. It's so it just implicates on that because we're always you know we're looking at future tax liability and so forth. So we're just it's important. Yeah, you can't do the retirement plan without the estate plan at least to get it comprehensive, right? And we heard that uh, I think Marshall McAllister early in season four here talked about this overlap quite a bit, where sort of optimizing the let's say the rift to to mitigate the tax bill later on or some version of that, just as a, a very short example. And uh, Craig, do you have a, an ideal client? I know you said sort of a broad swath of the population, but is there an ideal client for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously we work with everyone and I, I actually really enjoy working with a pretty broad range of people. But uh, the more interesting stuff that we do that I really enjoy doing is is that, you know, a bit more complex stuff. I often find there's an, an interesting stage for, for clients where uh, oftentimes someone will do their first will when they're, you know, maybe first have kids and then whether they're updating it or redoing everything or, you know, uh, they're more on top of things, I don't know. But uh, usually uh, around the time when the kids are mid twenties, it's a much more interesting client to work with in terms of the types of things they're trying to do. They've, you know, the kids are adults, not just worried about setting up a basic trust for the kids and, and away you go. It's more about, you know, we're a bit more established. We have some assets. 
we don't have to worry about the kids necessarily. And let's get creative. Let's let's think of something in terms of what do you want to leave as a legacy, that kind of thing. So you get excited when you find out that they're on like a second marriage and they have a corporation and a vacation <laughs> property in Arizona or whatever. That's- well, that obviously all really complicates things, but uh, well, I, that's where we provide a lot of value, to be honest. I think that it is kind of uh, helpful because I've seen a lot of things go really sideways in situations like that. So, yeah, there you go. Okay, perfect. And uh, Ian, I know you talked about sort of retirement planning, 55 plus. Anything else you'd say about your uh, ideal client? Well, basically, we get this question quite a bit where, um, you know, we only work with clients with a half a million dollars of investable assets or more. I find that a little insulting uh, because we have an advisory practice and our fee schedule is based on a range. Right? We take them all because we find the 30-year-old demographic is our future. Um, they need planning just as much as anybody else, the different needs for different stages of life. So we're open. Of course, we target. I specifically target that age rate, but we we accept people who want to get it right and who are willing to work with the planner. So, Okay. So if it's not obvious now, you two do a fair bit of work together. I assume, Ian, that you sort of send a ton of your estate planning needs over to Craig to deal with. I, you've told me as much. And I'm wondering how this came about. Was there some sort of selection process uh, where the two of you meet? I don't know, Ian, if you want to kick us off here. Okay. This is very interesting. This is pre-COVID. Um, so I had a lawyer, uh, it was a corporate lawyer who did estates on the side and this individual was retiring for, I shouldn't say retire, but, um, this individual left the industry due to family, to raise a family. And I asked the individual, do you know anybody? And Craig Turbot came to mind and I met with Craig. I think it was up in Crowfoot, Northwest Calgary, Craig, when we first met, and I said, I need help. So we need a trustworthy source. I'm not worried about reciprocity. I'm really not. I just need someone to be to add to our team, the value add, the perception, so forth. And Craig was it. I said, let's give this guy a test run and the rest is history. It's been awesome. And Craig, anything to add on there? Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, interestingly enough, so Chelsea knew about, uh, or the individual there, uh, knew about uh um, me because she'd had a client that was up uh, outside of the city, not mobile, and and couldn't really go anywhere to get her s- stuff done. And she'd heard about me through someone else, asked if I was willing to to go and work with her that client, and and I did. And so we sort of developed a relationship that way. Um, and so just just one of those things when you're able to go the extra mile, you never know how it works out. And yeah, just in terms of the vibe with. Ian, it was it was a great meeting. He was obviously very organized and very very thorough, and 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 had had everything lined up. So it was a a bit like an interview the first time, and then after that we did a few trial runs, and it went really great. And then you know it was just a good fit. Right, and I think it should be. I think that you know it's not right to just use the the first person you meet as a referral source. It should be, you know, is it actually a good fit? And you know, coincidence seriously, Ian's very well organized and all that kind of stuff. That that describes him quite accurately. Now, on the reciprocity side, Ian, you know, you, you say there was no expectation of reciprocity. Craig, I'm wondering, have you run into you know, financial advisors, wealth planners, that kind of thing? who sort of have an expectation, they say, you know what, I'll send you referrals, but I'm expecting you to send me referrals back. Or have you ever heard that? Uh, yeah, that's that's sort of the standard, right? Uh, is I'll, I'll have a financial planner, usually one, especially one starting out who says, hey, let's, let's go for a coffee. And, you know, I, I think I can send you some work. 
Uh, always happy to go for a copy. And uh, usually it's something like, well, you know, I can probably send you, you know, do you have capacity? I can send you usually the, their anticipation of how many clients they can send my way is much greater than the reality. But um, just because the nature of, I think, human nature, people maybe should get things done, but they don't necessarily do it. The other thing is they're usually looking for a level of reciprocity, which I understand, but it, it's just not necessarily the reality of how the practice works. Most of the people who are organizing at the point of getting wills done already have a financial planner. Um, and if a financial planner is sending a client to me, I'm not going to poach them and send them to Ian or something like that. Because that, that, that's the end of those referrals. And and similarly, you know, um, once in a while there is something where I can send someone's way, but it's, uh, you know, few and far between. And obviously, we have a lot more clients on an annual basis than we have uh, you know, even if I could refer every client, uh, you know, we're we're processing a lot more volume than even a financial planner could even handle if that was the case. Can I add to that, Jason? Yeah, please, Ian. Yeah. yeah, this is such a this is such a good thing. So reciprocity, the art of referral, right? And it seems like there's some unbeknownst Kool Aid out there that advisors drink that if I just talk to a mortgage broker and an accountant and a lawyer, it's just, you know, the silver bullet's going to have, it just, it doesn't work that way. To me, it's like, it's, it's too advisor centric, that approach. It's about them. To me, it's about the client. So let's take the long game. And if I can put a top notch professional before my clients, who's an extension of my team, which Craig is, and these people are handed because we want to motivate people. It's about it's not about referral. It's about motivating the client to get be taken care of. And we have a very well-honed process to do that. Once the client experiences the process from planning to a state practitioner, referrals come. Then you ask. <laughs> not And don't put that levy on this estate practitioner. No, I need him or her to do their job, do it well, because then that gives me the impetus or the I guess the permission as it were to ask, right? So that's my game. I, I think there is a way to use those professional networks. Like you're you're absolutely right, Ian. I think there is a way to use professional networks to sort of build referral networks, but you have to have like a super fine niche to do this. And I, I'll use like Carl Richards here, Carl Richards, who's a big financial planning commentator in the US, and he always says, you know. Target market, uh, people with a recent exit from their business with more than $10 million uh, of sale proceeds. Like that's a, a super specific one. Or, you know, he, on a recent episode of his podcast, he talked about cardiologists who rock climb. Like, great. If that's your target market and that's all you deal with, go tell accountants and lawyers you deal with those people because you're unlikely to find somebody with such a fine niche otherwise. So Jason, you know what I'm finding though with this process with Craig, for example, because the client is so taken care of, we're now the Craig's the extension to Craig and his profession is providing intergenerational planning opportunities on my side. That's it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, now, as far as sort of fighting this fit, I think we're already seeing a little bit of. I don't want to say like a personality fit, but you do you two have a good rapport. I can see this already. Um, do you think it's business model? Is it credentials? Do you have a feel for what the the right items in the checkbox were to make this relationship work? And Craig, you talked about Ian's organization. Anything else you want to comment on there? Um, well, I mean, obviously, Ian being very organized and, um, 
my impression of Ian is that on the back end of things, when he's not in front of a client, he does so much planning that when he's in front of a client, he can just be himself and he doesn't have to think about all the extra things he has to do. He builds everything into a process so he can just be present. And, and that's what I find when I'm, I'm meeting with him as well. And so for the two of us, we both sort of like working on process like that. But I think we're also, you know, it's a combination of taking what we do very seriously, but also being fairly lighthearted and conversational when you're talking with a client. It doesn't have to be a dark, heavy conversation or anything like that. Obviously, on the Will side, it can be darker and, and you know, potentially more depressing. But again, it doesn't have to be. It's just a conversation about how things are going to go, you know, talking about your wealth and what you'd like to do. And I think we really share that. Um, and, and, and there's a very similar vibe that we both sort of have with our clients. So the handover is really easy. If, if they can get along with you and then get along with me uh, is what I find. So it's a bunch of things to answer your question very broadly. Perfect. And yes, this is Aiden. Aiden is over here eating his uh, pudding as we, as we chat. So, <laughs> so, yeah. Very quietly though. Yes. Yeah. I, I like Craig. I just like him. And he gets it. He gets it. He understands what we're after and the client is the end goal. But I think we genuinely enjoy being around each other. We go to lunch frequently, his staff and my staff, because there's synergies there. And it's just telling me a story or how can I help you? It's just it's just genuine desire to improve our, our relationship with each other and the client experience. It's just, I don't know, it's just such a nice vibe. I, I like it. It's easy to, he's easy to roll with. Very. And- yeah, and I think, you know, if your clients enjoy dealing with you and you enjoy dealing with, like, there's a, a good win there, right? That just makes sense. So, yeah, I, I think personality is important here. Now, Ian, um, I run into this perception from time to time, and I don't know what you're feeling about this is, wherein we're supposed to provide three referrals. So if I'm sending somebody to an estate lawyer, I hear people say, you know, I'm supposed to give three estate lawyer names. What's your thought here? I think this is, uh, I think Craig has more insight into this than I do, but um, from where my standpoint, I've heard this uh, basically from your podcast, Jason, I kind of had to think through this. I've not come through this for our compliance department. It's not been raised, but no, I would say that perception is non-existence in my world from a compliance standpoint, but Craig may have something else to add. For me, it, I'll sometimes refer clients to someone, if I know they'd be a good fit personality-wise and uh, you know, like, let's say to a family lawyer or something like that. If I have someone that I think is the absolute best at what they do, and I generally just refer them and then say, look, if you need others, I can provide, but that's who I'd recommend. Other times, if there's, if I don't have a go-to person that I think is amazing, I'll give a few because it's, you know, prevents any sort of issues of liability on my end of, you said I should meet with this person, it's an issue. So for me personally, it really depends on the how, how good I think the person actually is at what they do. And in fact, if I think they're going to crush it, hopefully that's how Ian feels about me. But uh, then I, I make sure that that's sorted out on that. You know, I just directly refer. Yeah, so if there's a personality mismatch. We have members of our teams that have differing personalities follow. And they would just, so Craig's not a fit. It might be for his associate, right? It's just, that's kind of how it works that way. But as far as the, um, the three references, I, I'm not familiar with that. I'm sorry. And that's good. I'm glad for that. I agree with that, by the way. I think that there's times when it's appropriate. I think your description is, was really good, Craig, about that. You know, if you know the person's the right fit, use that referral. Yeah, because I actually think, just sorry to be a bit worried, but uh, I think the benefit to me as the referrer is greater than if I say, here's three people, pick and choose. If I give a strong recommendation for someone, for someone and they do a great job, it reflects so much better on me and in terms of my relationship with that person. So, 
one of the areas I think when we had first talked about the possibility of doing this uh, this podcast with the three of us, Ian, you had brought up the idea of talking about gifting and donation uh, projects. This is an area where we see a lot of overlap with that sort of retirement estate planning you talked about before. So can you take me through a little bit of how the gifting or donation conversation goes? And maybe, Ian, where do you start this off? I think it was actually from Craig's side. So how this came about, Craig inquired from me regarding donor-advised funds. And so this is where we talk about reciprocity. This is where it really begins to foment. So what we did was, okay, what is the process um, to having the conversation? Where does the estate practitioner fit in? Where does the planner fit in? And then from my side, so can we actually bring Craig into the know more? So what we did was we had a fund company and their TEP team come in and they present it. So we're now investing educationally into Craig Here's how it works. And on our end, our back office, my back office, we went through and we honed the process. Here's what we need to do to set up a donor advised fund. Here's how it works. So get the education going with Craig, make him aware that we, yes, we do do it. You know, we have to get the the charitable trust name or the trust name back to him so we can put into a will, get it, and then ensure that it's been set up. That's the thing. So once it's set up, the name goes back to Craig and then he continues on with the, with the planning documents. Of that nature. So I don't know if that answers the question up, but that's at a high level. And and Craig, was this something that you sort of stumbled across and you said, oh, you know, Ian should know something about this? Or is it something you'd always had kind of bubbling and you thought, this is my chance to to get to sit with somebody who's going to know the process? What's the... It was, it was more the latter. Um, it actually worked really well because obviously uh, there's a lot of finance, strictly financial planning benefits for um, uh, donor advised funds, but the specific legal side of it is that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but a lot of charities on the estate side can be quite litigious um, in terms of protecting their interests. And therefore, you can sometimes be saddling your your heirs or your executor with a lot of extra back and forth scrutiny, potential threats of lawsuits, those kinds of things, especially when you're not giving a very specific dollar amount or something like that. Uh, so with something that might be a bit more variable or, or a bit more up to uh, discretion, a donor advised fund is so helpful because it means that those charities don't have a direct interest in the estate. They have an interest in the fund and the fund is funded by the estates. And that line of separation protects the estate so much and it just makes everything so much easier. So I was aware of it. Uh, you know, I had, had a chat and uh, I said, well, let, let's learn a bit more so that I can make sure that I can send some of this, uh, you know, work with your clients and set this up. Perfect. Um yeah, and I agree with this. In fact, I'm in the midst of rewriting my own will right now, and uh, our lawyer won't let us leave uh, charity as a residual beneficiary. So, mm, yeah, yeah, to avoid the uh, whole question of a, an accounting for the estate, right? So, yeah, perfect. Um, now, you talked about other benefits for the donor advised funds, and can we go? Th- is there anything else you want to bring up here in terms, like Ian? What do you see of other benefits for donor advised funds? It's just having it on your shelf, Jason, and being able to speak to it when it arises, right? Usually you don't, you don't know what you don't know, but having just being aware of it, awareness is key. So people with significant assets, hey, have you considered this? And this is where the estate practitioner would come in because you do need that conversation, right? What's the goal here? Follow. So yeah, just being aware and having that, that tool in your arsenal. 
Okay. I mean, you talked about the team coming in, the team of trust and state practitioners coming in. And I think that's another benefit I would point to here is you get to deal with folks who really know what they're doing. But uh, like they're they're going to understand Craig's role and they're going to understand your role. It's just beneficial. It just it just makes it the it's just it's almost like a kickstart to a process. To me, Jason, like here's the concept. It's intangible. How do we get our minds around it? How do we script around it? How do we set up the back end process around it? It's like I love the the intricacies of it and the workings. It's an, it's the financial engineering behind it. The concept is well known. Let's solidify it more, raise the awareness, but be ready to pull the trigger when we see the opportunity. Yes, we can do this, and here's are the steps. <laughs> That's this is critical as introducing the concept. Introducing the concept without knowing how to implement is like blowing smoke. And just we just want to be ready, poised, you know, we're we're we know what we're doing. So Perfect. Um, now, what about other advisors? I'm thinking the accountant specifically, but anybody else that would be involved here? Not overly, I don't think. In terms of, honestly, one of the advantages to the donor advised funds is quite often just how, uh, because the uh, the provider of the donor advised funds does a lot of that and that's what they do, there actually isn't that much in the way of complication. Like, obviously, the accountant has input in terms of, you know, where does that line, where's that line of what's most beneficial to the estate, things like that. So there's a clear understanding. But, um, you know, I think one of the biggest advantages is that you don't have to set up a, a complex trust or anything like that to set up this fund, right? It's it's all it's all done by them. And it, it's pretty close to something I'd call something like plug and play, right? You just um, set it up and away you go. And what about the donee charities? What's their level of involvement here? So usually the the charities are not even notified until they're receiving something, which depending on how you set up these funds, it might only be after death, depending if you're funding it through the will exclusively or if you're funding it earlier and, and having it as an ongoing thing. So, you know, there's advantages to doing it either way, depending on what you're looking for. If you want some level of recognition and things like that, obviously doing it earlier, or if you want that, you know, tax credit while you're alive, that's also beneficial. But um, quite often we're just doing it on an estate side exclusively and there's no honestly the estate doesn't even have any dealings directly with the charity at all um which is generally from an administration perspective easier right not until it's time to issue receipts i guess right that's about it so yeah um any other comments there ian no now what about the conversation with clients around this and i'm going to use i'm pretty sure it's a morning star study about four or five years ago that showed that and I'm going to get the numbers a little bit off here, but something to the effect of if we take 100 client conversations, like advisor-client conversations, in 80 of those conversations, the client, sorry, the advisor feels like they talk to the client about gifting to charity. And in 20 of those conversations, the client feels like the advisor talked to them about donating to charity, like this, this big disconnect. And I, I'm wondering... And I'll start with you here, Ian. If you feel like you've um, sort of solved that problem, if you feel like you're getting a higher level of responsiveness from your clients when you bring up this concept, you know, maybe because of this specific tool. Yeah, this is interesting, Jason. So you're doing planning, you're doing retirement planning. It just seems like the elephant in the room is like taking care of their needs. Um, ultra high network clients, it's probably likely to become more of a concern or an area to address. But the markets that we work in, 
Not really. It's like, it's just a little bit making sure money outlives them. Do you have any charitable aspirations? Are you givers? So usually in the planning process, you know, we have, okay, what do you need for basic retirement spending? Can we slot a line in for medical expenses? And then there's always the question, and I usually flush this out, do you give to charity? And it's not, it's surprisingly low, <laughs> right? Um, that conversation could be broached, could be expanded. Does it happen all the time? But I think you're right. <laughs> there is a disconnect. Craig, follow on there? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in, in my experience, uh, oftentimes there's people who, you know, I think you're, I'm sure you've seen the studies that show that most of the time, if someone currently gives to charity, that's the, the highest indicator of whether they're likely to leave something in their will to a charity, right? That will be a part of our conversation. Other times people bring it up without an understanding of how it all works. They think gifting to a charity will somehow end up with them having more money in the estate for their beneficiaries. And obviously that's not how it works. Um, or, or if they do, I need the contact information of their accountant. So oftentimes we'll have that conversation. And I'm like, you know, these are the benefits in terms of, you know, the, the cost to provide that amount of benefit to a charity is nowhere near that the dollar amount of what you're providing. So, you know, there's a huge benefit there. But I do find it's usually much more in the, the more high net worth clients who are already familiar with charitable giving, how it fits into a tax structure. They're more likely to want to proceed. And there's a fine line between mentioning, hey, you know, is that something you'd like to do? And trying to force someone down that road, because obviously I just want to take instructions and help guide them in the direction they want to go. I, I get that. And I think the lawyer's role here is a little bit different than the financial planner's role in terms of that uh, sort of guiding the client. I, I do like a, an alternate framing of this. I'm going to give credit to Kathy Hawksworth at Edmonton Community Foundation here. And Kathy doesn't ask about donation. Uh, she asks about what causes you support. And I, I always like this because this might make you think about, like, I do volunteer work somewhere or... You know, I buy tickets to the opera or, you know, that kind of thing. And those are not necessarily, at least not directly charitable, although they might have charities linked to them. Um, and those might get somebody thinking in a, a slightly different path. So I, I don't know if there's anything there for you, Ian, but that's uh, that's my slightly different framing on that. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yep. What causes you to give it? I like that. Yeah. Um, Kathy, she's a tax lawyer who hates talking about tax. So... So now, Craig, I'm curious, because we have the chance to ask you these questions, uh, for some of your overall take on drafting estate planning documents, where do you start? What's your initial information gathering process look like here? For sure. So, um, you know, in a general sense, um, I do try and get a sense of what a client's values are and, you know, more in terms of what's important to them, what we're trying to, in their mind, at least what we're trying to achieve by, by setting things up. Um, and what their main concerns are. Um, I find that's always helpful just to, to get a sense of knowing what is going to lead them to be satisfied at the end of the process, because you can cover all, I can cover all of my check boxes. And, and if I haven't addressed the one thing that they think they need to get, uh, or that they know they need to get from the process, then, uh, you know, they're not going to be happy. So I always like to start with that. So there's nothing that can cause an issue down the road, either with them being dissatisfied or, you know, even sometimes it can cause lengthy, lengthy delays in them deciding on something. And it's usually eventually once we figure it out in terms of, okay, well, should we do another meeting? Should we figure this out? 
there's one issue that we haven't properly addressed or they haven't really figured out how they feel about it. So I find that really helpful, like, because there's a lot of psychology that goes into estate planning for some people. For other people, it's just a document and it's not a big deal. But for, for some people, there's a lot to work through. So uh, we really start with that, get a sense of all who the, the family members are, you know, all of the sort of things that might cause issues for the estates as well. Um, and then we go through all the list of assets, you know, analyze things for taxes, beneficiary designations, things like that. We, we go pretty thoroughly. Uh, just like Ian was saying, he does it a lot of estate planning in his side of things. I end up looking at a fair amount of financial documents because I want to make sure, you know, I'm, I'm not just doing a will, I'm doing an estate plan. And I, I think those are two different things. Um, we're not hashing everything out to the dollar the way Ian might, but we are looking to make sure that there's nothing that's going to cause a tax issue or, or, you know, cause any kind of issue with the estate where we have a beneficiary going one way and, you know, that's encountered to the will or, or it doesn't necessarily work together. So. Perfect. Now, I'm interested in this values question. I think it's a great place to start. And in fact, I had this conversation yesterday with my uh, Chartered Life Underwriter students. When you ask about values, is it an open-ended question? Do you have like a list of values from which people choose? Do you have like an introductory conversation and lead in? Yeah, it's it's more of a conversational thing. Um, we have an introductory conversation and try and get the client to feel a little bit more comfortable just because it is a big topic then it does tend to be pretty open-ended because you never know where the client's going to take it. However, I do sort of have backup things that, you know, through years of doing this that I, I'm used to following up and saying, well, here's, you know, if you can't think of anything, is it more along the lines of X, Y, and Z, you know, and then sort of lead them down that road. And then there's a fair amount of intuition that goes on with it, to be honest, in, in terms of, I genuinely feel like a lot of the value that I provide is, is in meeting. It's not, oh, you filled out a questionnaire and now I'm just going to sort of apply that. Um, it's it's really getting a sense of what they need and and how we adjust it and what they're comfortable with. I want to bring just a minor thing for Craig. I remember Craig, remember coming out of the digital asset protection though? Remember that piece, Craig? Yeah. That was, can you speak to that? That was phenomenal because it's, it's very much overlooked, but can you touch on that piece? Yeah, so there's quite a bit of uh, variation in terms of depending on how you define digital assets. But, you know, in terms of that, uh, it's just making sure that your executor and then your beneficiaries have access to the proper online tools and and repositories of value that you have. It might be, you know, we tend to think of value, especially online values, access to bank accounts, things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of value from a personal level stored in, in photos that are in iCloud or something like that, various things like that. And, and really just making sure that that is sorted out um, properly and that your your executor has access to those kinds of things or not to other things as, as, as is needed. But uh, yeah, you're, you know, as our digital footprints sort of increase significantly, that's becoming more and more important. I absolutely agree with that. I always think about uh, a cousin of mine, she passed away in childbirth, uh, six or seven years ago now. And on Facebook, you still get her annual birthday reminder, right? This to me is a kind of classic example of a digital asset that I don't think was well considered. Wound down properly. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. And and it's a tough one. And so we actually differentiate between digital assets, which is, is more like documents and photos and things like that. And also social media. We have a separate social media and like Ian helped us with that, actually. We kind of worked on it together. Um, a social media memorandum that sort of really dictates, you know, we have prompts for the most 
significant things like Facebook, Instagram, things like that, but then also open-ended for providing additional stuff. But we have links to where you can, you know, we updated as these uh, platforms have started to figure out, hey, you know, maybe we should have someone listed as essentially like a, um, not quite a beneficiary, but you can basically name the person who can dictate what happens afterwards. Um, and, and that person can be in charge. So links to those kinds of things. And, and that, I think that's very helpful. Yeah, I know Facebook calls it a, a legacy account manager. That's yes. The, uh, yeah. Yes. There you go. And Ian, I'm curious here about your involvement with kind of Craig's information gathering process. How much work do you do preparing your clients for their first meeting with Craig? Oh, it's actually, it's pretty simple. It's a very light touch. Um, so we worked, we honed the process pretty good where the assistants, so basically it's an actionable item on a meeting note and the assistants have scripts all done up in say Outlook that would introduce the client to Craig and his team and providing the corresponding data, right? For each side. Uh, of course, we're going on our notes saying we have specific permission to approach the uh, to Craig and his team, we make sure we have that disclosed, and that's it. So it's an email introduction, and of course, I talk Craig up. I got a business card behind me there, and slide across the table, and it's really simple, but it's always on top of mind because we're trying to surround and hedge the client. So it's it's easier than, I guess, a little hard, a little time intensive to get it set up, and then um, the reciprocity. Talking about reciprocity again, where once it's referred to Craig, he does his magic. The documents get uploaded to a secure portal. And then we have the ability to download that and place on the client's file. It's it's amazing. So moving on to, sorry, uh, still dealing with your clients here, Craig, um, is this like 100% of clients that come to see you walk out with estate planning documents? Do people run into burdens here and not get their documents done? Do you have a feel for I think, you know, uh, if we're meeting with a client, there's a very, very high likelihood of, of us, uh, you know, converting the client and actually getting them to actually prepare everything. Um, I'd say sometimes people aren't quite ready to do things for whatever reason. Um, certainly not an issue on Ian's side or anything like that, but more, um, you know, I think Ian's generally very well prepares his clients for, you know, what to expect, what we can do, that kind of thing. Um, but there are some times where, someone's asking us to sort of something on, you know, part of what we do is we say, well, you have to, you know, figure out how you would like to deal with this. And sometimes people need time to process that and it, it can be a while, but um, I would say generally, um, you know, uh, most of the people who contact us through Ian, are like, you know, more than 90%, I think, you know, getting their documents done. Um, and and it's, it's really great from our perspective. So this is really good. It's Greg, you're helping, you're helping me here. So I find that, uh, more than one client has commoditized the estate planning process on Craig. Will kits, all this nonsense, right? And I say, you really need to talk to a professional who's up on legislation, who's you know abreast of major developments, different scenarios that might directly impl implicate on your situation. Do you see what I'm saying? But it's unfortunately commoditized a little too much for my liking. Same with my industry, our industry a bit, right? But more so Craig's. So we try to really position someone who listens, someone's going to be, prepare a, a document that reflects your values and your your goals, so forth. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I think it's telling that it took us this long to get to the legal will kit concept. Um, 
I guess I'm curious, like clients like you're dealing with, Ian, where they would have at least reasonably complex scenarios, do they, you find they still want to do that kind of thing? Jason, do they say, like, I can go ahead? Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> kind of questions that. <laughs> I, I, you know yeah. what? The people, you know the deal. The people you think have it all together are the worst. Yeah. The people who look like they're ter- poor as church mice, it's incredible how astute they are how engaged they are i mean i have 30 year olds that would put doctors to shame i really do and it's phenomenal so we don't you know we try to prejudge anybody just what are we getting today so the ability to pivot and adapt is critical in this in this matter and i'd follow up on that ian and just say that you know i think a lot of the time it's not necessarily that someone's uh, like it's not related to that person's intelligence it's it's very much what they've heard and what they've been told because it's it's not an area that they're familiar with and um if they've seen a bunch of different blog articles or whatever it is saying oh you don't need to do it i did mine it cost me 25 bucks and then away we go um i also, i always point to like you're not going to know and i mean that goes for even working with me you're not going to know if the documents are, are properly done and effective uh you know until you're not around and you won't know at that point either so you have to look at the other sort of you know, does the person you're talking to make a lot of sense when you're talking to them? Does it does everything seem to to work out of their explanations? Do they carry water? Uh, that kind of thing. And it, it's tricky because we have something where you can't uh, can't really judge someone's quality unless you take it to another lawyer and get them to assess it, which would be a very expensive way of dealing with things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's you're right. It's a it's not a great sort of second opinion business, right? Kind of you have to know the person you're dealing with knows what they're doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, as far as referring out here, Craig, so, you know, you're a specialist and obviously this is what you do. Um, are there areas in the estate planning realm where you find it's best to refer out? And I, I've made a list here. I, can you walk us through these? I start with uh, folks with serious disabilities. So do you deal with that or would you refer that out? Yeah, I, 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 I do that significantly. Obviously, like we might involve an accountant or something like that, uh, depending on the scenario. But um, we, we definitely do that kind of kind of work. We, you know, do a fair amount of that, actually, in terms of making sure that uh, we're maximizing the benefits they can receive, those kinds of things. Yeah, of course, it's such a highly specialized area. Um, and I know, Ian, you have, like, I know you do RDSP and all that kind of stuff, and there's so much overlap there, so... Um, and if you have comments about these, Ian, just jump in for me. It's uh, okay. Uh, so then, what about folks with family law concerns? You already specifically talked about referring it to a family lawyer, um, but you know, there's this overlap where you've got somebody who's on second marriage, third marriage, kids still at dependent ages, all that. How do you work with family lawyers there? Yeah. So I mean, we're happy to, and, and quite often we'll, we'll request things like you know divorce settlement agreements court orders, things like that, um, so that we make sure that there's nothing in the will that's going to go offside of what they've already set up or, you know, uh, cohabitation agreements, that kind of thing. Um, We don't prepare those documents, though, and and we don't do anything to do with that. So quite often, sometimes people will contact us under the impression that a will helps sort out who owns what, and a will can only hand out what you already own. So uh, you have to be clear as to who owns it before we can put it well, we can put it in the will, but you should know who owns what before you put it in the will. So 
Um, that part, it's, uh, we'll always refer that out. And, and that might be actually a case, like we were talking about before, where there might be a delay where we say, look, you, you have to go get sort out this cohabitation agreement or something like that. Um, so that it's clear what you own versus someone else. Um, and, you know, uh, that works quite well with our practice. We refer quite a bit of family law work out, but always on the estate planning side, um, you, we, we do all of that. We just want to make sure we're not offside of anything. I want to comment. I want to take you back up to that disability uh, question there, Jason. Um, remember, we're talking about the intergenerational family planning <clears throat> And this gives rise to, you know, do you have children? So these are talking, your 60-year-olds, do you have children? Do you have grandchildren that are disabled? So um, we're finding a lot of success in this space because we do refer um, this piece of the disability tax credit qualification. We actually have a, a DTC specialist that we refer to. And I'll make a plug for him. His name is Omar Burry from Lightcross. That's where that's his name of his company, a former employee of the CRA. His sole job is to go in and have a discussion and help you apply for the DTC retroactively to however many years since the thing. So most people were finding is that, oh, um, we're on the grid, the autistic grid, and they feel that a mental illness does not or a mental condition does not qualify you for a disability tax rate. He would go in and he knows the wording that the government's looking for to qualify you. So we had, oh, the, it's incredible. We had a, a geologist and an IT specialist with two autistic children, and they just they didn't even think about it. And just the fact that you're asking that question repeatedly, we qualified them for, oh, retroactively 10 years. We had, at the end of that, uh, they contributed like $10,000 each, $20,000, and fetched about $40,000 and disability tax credit that they applied to the RDSP to get all the granting money. It was just such a win-win with money left over. So those are opportunities that we need. We have a specialist. So you think you may not qualify. Well, let's see if you do. Do you mind if I so forth and so on? It's been very successful. So there's a example. Perfect. I'll put the link to Omar's contact info in the show notes. That's good, Ian. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're welcome. Now, I had a student yesterday ask me this question about, you know, I got clients with property in Singapore and residents of Canada with property in Singapore. These are, I find the most complicated cases. Craig, what do you do here? Yeah. So, I mean, this is one where it depends on the le level of complexity. Sometimes, I mean, we're always referring some level of this out because I'm not preparing a Singapore will. Uh, you don't want me to, and I'm not going to go near it. Um, so I usually recommend at the very least, they work with, you know, a lawyer in that jurisdiction to prepare the pro proper documentation for there. We make sure that the will here is specific to Canadian assets or, you know, assets other than in that particular jurisdiction uh, so that they can work hand in hand, because that's obviously important. You don't want to invalidate one when you set up the other one. Um, but depending on the circumstances, I might also set them up with, you know, and this gets quite pricey pretty quickly, but a cross-border accountant. They're very expensive, but they can save you exponentially more if you don't have things properly set up otherwise. So um, it depends on the circumstance. If they, if they just have a rental property down in, in the U.S. or something like that, might not be necessary. I always sort of say, well, you know, this is an option. Um, but certainly if there's a lot more going on, you definitely need uh, someone to advise on that if they haven't already. And I'm sure, Ian, you warn people about complexity in those cases. 
Yeah, so a couple of things there. We had the U.S. estate tax laws there that's always in the air. And we just would just say, wherever you have assets, uh, that in whatever jurisdiction, you should have a will in that jurisdiction to govern those assets. And the estate lawyer will tell you much more about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good warning. And, yeah. and bill you accordingly. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah. all right. So... Um, what about significant business or farming assets, Craig? Is there anything different for you here? Um, no, I mean, we definitely work with that, uh, you know, and, and help prepare. We work with a fair amount of clients that we want to make sure they have a qualified family farm and those kinds of things to make sure that they're not, you know, the tax differences between if it's actually implemented properly versus not are is huge. And, you know, quite often we see someone where they're um, renting out the property and they think that they're so qualified, but they're not. And you just, you don't have to do anything fundamentally different, but it has to be structured slightly differently uh, to qualify. And, and the difference on that is astronomical to, uh, you know, whether they'll basically have to sell the farm or not down the road. So um, that's what's really important, but we, we absolutely do all of that. And, you know, we do corporate work as it relates to succession planning, that kind of thing. But, you know, we don't, we don't do a lot of day-to-day, -day, you know, incorporating your business and that kind of stuff, but we do the more sort of involved corporate work as well. You'll, you'll help me write a buy-sell, but you're not going to help me uh, do a, a reorg at a hold core, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it ties in, we'll do it, but usually we send that out to someone else. We'd rather focus on the estate planning and succession planning stuff. Comments there, Ian? No, that's very thorough. Perfect. And anything else that jumps to mind, Craig, as far as referring out, anything that would show up for you where you say, I'd rather not, got to pass this off to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, obviously, so we do we do estate planning and we do the the estate work. So, you know, if, if someone passes away, we're helping the executor. Uh, sometimes it's just a, an advisory call to say, hey, this is the scenario you're in. This is what we recommend you do to make sure that you're not going to be sued. Other times we're doing all of the estate work for the, the client and basically just billing them for it. And, you know, our paralegals are able to, to manage a lot of the estate more basic estate tasks than an executor would have. With that said, you know, sometimes we get the call of, hey, I'm, I've got an estate situation, can you help? But it turns out that really what they're dealing with is, is you know, full-on estate litigation. We refer all of that out. We're, we're not, we'll send a letter or something like that on behalf of the client. But generally speaking, we're not, you know, going to get involved in, in a really complex litigation matter that's going to take years to resolve. We'll send that out and, and, and you know, our, I think our strengths lie more in the advisory role. So, yeah, that's interesting. I always wonder about this with, you know, I know some estate lawyers who do both sides, who do the drafting and the litigation work. And as you say, advisory work, I shouldn't ignore that. Right. Yeah. Um, but, and then I know others who say what, what you say, I'm just going to like, I'm, I'm going to do the, the kind of the front 80% and, you know, the, the nightmare 20% at the back end. Not for me, right? Yeah. So, so Jason, you raise a really. This is really good when you raise this. Like, what what would you refer out? So to me, it's like just to hearing what Craig said there. They're focusing on the advisory role, and this is the the danger of say developing advisors. You know, they want to be all things to all people, and versus focusing on their niche and where they excel, and that's having conversations and uncovering goals and so forth. Like, so our we call it a center of influence. Our COI network is just critical. We won't do group benefits, for example. We will not touch it. It's distracting. It's time-consuming. 
we're not experts. It takes a long time to get up, and the servicing is no thank you. We refer that out, and to, <laughs> and I think we all know who, but we do that. Disability tax credit. We do mortgage brokers. We have family estate people. We have estate, you know, all this kind of go down. Accountants. We have an international tax cross border tax accountant specifically because we have a lot of uh, transient uh, activity here in Calgary. People going to Texas or Houston, the oil and gas industry, so forth. And then we have regular accounts. So all these things we refer out to stay focused and then hedge the client. Focus on the client and hedge them. And that's the goal. So if you can learn when to, to draw that line, and you should know that professionally, uh, you're going to be successful. So it's very important. This is this goes right back to my question earlier about selecting people to whom to refer. This is one of the questions that I would be asking in my interview process is, you know, tell me about situations where a client comes to see you and you would refer them out. You wouldn't deal with them. To, to me, that sort of speaks to that specialization. So, Jace, further to that, just briefly, like, well, so we had a high network client in Edmonton and we were competing for their business. And this individual was, had their homework done and they liked the Google. I had a list, they vetted me. Who do you deal with? Who's associated with your firm? And it was a very thorough, and I almost, I went to my uh, district director and said, can you believe this? To which the district director replied, I wish they would all do that of every advisor. And it just kept you like, oh, kept your feet to the fire, kept you honed. It's just, it's great. People need to know that. I have one last question here and then we'll wrap up. But I have to ask this because it's a, it's a favorite topic of mine. And it's one that I find interesting because I find there's sometimes some friction here. And this is the idea of using the will to make insurance beneficiary designations. So Craig, do you have an opinion about this? So I quite frequently get clients asking me to do that. Um, and other than in emergency situations, I always suggest that like, you know, it's what it's far better to actually have a beneficiary listed on the document, especially, especially if it's a matter of, oh, it, you know, maybe names my former spouse right now. I just want to change it to my kids in a situation like that. Obviously, alerting them as to, you know, the the bank's not going to be responsible if the RSP pays out to the spouse because they weren't aware that the will changed the designation, those kinds of things. What we do, though, is, you know, I do find that there's, in some circumstances, a real advantage to having something more comprehensive set out. So, you know, in the event of, let's say, single mom, two kids that are, you know, minors, and we want to have it go to the kids. We want to try and keep it out of the estate just to try and manage it properly, but we don't want to actually have it, um, you know, being dealt with uh, just in terms of they get it all at age 18, especially maybe if we're talking about a life insurance or something like that, um, or we want to name the appropriate trustee, varying different levels of what you're allowed to put in some of these documents and not. Um, and even if you're allowed to put an age, say 25, and you're allowed to put a, um, you know, a, a trustee, you still don't have the terms of the trust in terms of outlining what the discretion is, what they can pay for, all those kinds of things. So we actually do a separate designation change document that they can then file um, with their insurer or, or whatever, you know, whatever it is that basically details, not just, you know, the beneficiary, but it, it's not a lot of extra work on our end. We just use the exact same trust terms that we have in the will anyways. You know, obviously adjust them slightly, but that's outlining a full trust for the kids 
that is much more robust, but it still protects those assets from, you know, uh, if the estate goes bankrupt, if the estate gets sued, you know, all those kinds of things, uh, the benefits are there, but, you know, you can still have a comprehensive trust. So this would be like an insurance trust that's going to act mostly as a beneficiary designation, but give you a little more juice than you would get by just naming beneficiary because the insurance apps don't allow a lot of complexity, right? No. Ian, any follow-on comments there? Well, just beneficiary designation on registered assets is just huge, huge, huge. Uh, what I've seen, the mess of it all. So no will, um, primary beneficiaries on a seg fund, seg fund. So the primary is supposed to be 50% and their two children will be 25 and 25. And then a brother or sister as the secondary beneficiary. It's just a hot mess. So it's like, get a will. Spouse's primary. We usually do that pretty quick. Usually it's in the group space, the institutional investing space where they're self-directed, follow where all the errors uh, take place. You know, we want the spousal of his primaries to do the tax shelter rollover registered investments. And then the estate typically is the secondary. So where we can get, appoint the guardian for the kids and they can, like Craig was talking, we can phase in monies for the maturation process, 18, 22, 25 years old and so forth and so on. But we see a lot of mess there. And I must admit, this is the first place we actually go in our review of institutional investing, Jason, is this area. It's not what you're investing. This is where the client wants to take you. What am I investing? No, 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 no. <laughs> Let's see if it's going to go to people in the event of your demise in a tax efficient way. And then usually we uncover there's no will and then hence Craig. But this is 80% of all institutional investing is a mess in our opinion. So that's big ones. Yeah. And you see spousal RSPs done badly there, beneficiary designations done badly. Yeah. A bunch yep. of stuff that, because it's DIY, right? Or at least- Pay attention. Largely DIY. Okay. Perfect. Um, okay. Uh, so Craig, Ian, you've both been great. I think this is a really good example of a, a synergistic relationship here. I, I imagine a lot of advisors will watch this and say, you know, I'd like to find a, a Craig that I can work with. Um, Craig, any uh, closing thoughts or comments here? Um, yeah, I mean, when you're starting out, just realize that, you know, all I think most of the most beneficial relationships that you'll develop either way are are built over time. And because trust has to build up, right? If I'm, if I'm giving my clients or referring my clients to someone, I have to really know and trust that person, you know, almost more than I need to trust the person with my money. So, um, you know, that that's really important. Uh, and, and just because you don't get instant results doesn't mean that it's not something worth pursuing. Um, you can imagine you're probably not getting great. It, it's probably not a great connection if the person says, you know, they've met you 10 minutes ago and they say, oh, well, we can send you a whole bunch of clients, no problem. Uh, that, you know, either that's not going to happen or they're not, they don't really care about their clients, neither of which is what you want. So. That's fair. And I hate to do this now because I'm going to give Ian the last word here. Yes. <laughs> last word, Ian. Last word, Ian. Thank you, Jason. Love it. Okay. This is very close to the heart um, because it bespeaks of the advice. There's an immaturity amongst advisors when they're starting in this business that there's a silver bullet. And Craig spoke to this time. So to me, it's like you have to stop thinking of yourself as an advisor and your client, your, your genuine desire to take care of your client should drive you. So to me, in my approach to Craig, is that I'm going to make it a problem for Craig. Craig, I don't want any reciprocity. I just need to have people taken care of, and I'm going to make a problem for you. And then I'm going to watch him respond. You have to watch. So then there's a lunch. There's chit-chat back and forth. Is there a vibe that's developing, and are we synergizing? 
So you have to take a risk as an advisor and risk on people. So take 10 clients, take an estate lawyer out to, out to lunch. Hey, I got a few clients I want to send you away. Do you mind? And monitor and watch. But you'd have to not worry about getting something back. <laughs> Just give and it will take care of itself, in my opinion. So Perfect. Well, I'd like to thank both of you very much. Uh, again, a wealth of content we got through here. Got to really dig into this relationship. And Craig, you were good enough to give us an insight into the you know, the more nitty-gritty details of some of the work you do. So really appreciate that. Hope you both have a wonderful day. And again, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Uh, really thank appreciate you. it. All right. Um, lots there. I think that uh, you can hear Craig really gave us a lot to chew on. I enjoyed the discussion around digital assets and how that gets worked up. I, I'm going to actually ask Ian for some of the documentation they use. I've seen another good example of that as well. I'm thinking of uh, Peter out in Stratford. With, uh, I know he has a good list of this. So, Peter, if you're listening, thanks for sharing that with me. The number for today's episode is nine. The number for today's episode is nine. Thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. Thanks very much for joining us. You'll be able to do your quiz by creating an account and subscribing for $15 a month or $150 a year at businesscareercollege.com. Those who subscribe on an annual basis will also have access to three half-day continuing education seminars covering a variety of topics and capturing a range of different continuing education credit requirements. In order to get your credits for this episode, you'll have to do a short five-question quiz. You'll need the number that I went over just after the interview, the object that I displayed at the beginning of the interview, and you'll also have to recall a few details, nothing too challenging, from the episode. Once you have completed the quiz, Within the course where you did the quiz, you'll be able to click at the top right corner. And from there, you'll be able to choose the option to view wall certificate. That's how you'll see your CE credits. Hang on to that, although the system will hang on to it as well. I would like to acknowledge the efforts of a few people in getting this episode to air. Jocelyn Lord, Rennie Wong, and Sushami Pamalupaket are the amazing marketing team at We Know Training, which is Business Career College's parent company. Sush also does our video content. Joseph Tong composed the theme music and does the sound editing for every episode, as well as uploads the episodes to all audio platforms. Maria Nguyen takes care of all our CE approvals. 